This episode is brought to you by Progressive, where customers who save by switching their home and car save nearly $800 on average. Quote at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $793 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2021 and May 2022. Potential savings will vary. Nightlight has partnered with Fan Roll Dice by Metallic Dice Games to offer an exclusive discount on one of their gorgeous dice sets that we've fallen in love with because of their satisfying weight and, let's just be honest, sparklies not to mention their impeccably constructed dice accessories. In one word, velvet. Visit fanrolldice.com, that's F-A-N-R-O-L-L-D-I-C-E dot com, and use our discount code NIGHTLIGHT for 10% off any new additions to your dice hoard. A portion of your purchase will come back to us and help support our shows. So go to fanrolldice.com with the discount code NIGHTLIGHT to get 10% off of any additions to your dice hoard. I'm Tanya Ransom, creator and executive producer of Nightlight, a horror podcast that features creepy tales written by Black writers from all over the world. And today I'm here with Alexis Brooks DeVita, author of Her Faithful Black Cat. How are you today, Alexis? I'm fine. Thank you, Tanya. How are you? I'm doing great. So how long have you been writing? That's a great question. I think that like a lot of African-American women, I've actually been writing most of my life. So I'm almost a senior, which means that I've been writing um, over, I think, half a half of a century. Oh, wow. It shifts. You know, it shifts. I know as a, as a teenager, I wrote several poems a day. It was just how I survived. And I as a slightly younger person, I know I liked to write, to try to write um, stories and I didn't really have a name for them. And so sometimes they'd be very long. I kept running stories in my head that I would entertain myself with or, or talk myself to sleep with at night. And then as an adult, I mean, I stopped when I started having children when I was married the only thing I was still writing was my diary a a journal Mm -hmm. you know I used to tell myself stories to go to sleep did you as well yeah I'm so glad to hear that that is such an important part of storytelling you know when you know that it's persuasive because it it worked with you and you knew the plot you knew everything exactly yeah it made me feel safe honestly That's a great way to feel safe. I love the wind chimes in your background. I love wind chimes. So So I hope the listeners enjoy them too. Wind chimes are just great. They're so relaxing. Your voice is so relaxing. This is like, this is going to be something I'm just going to listen to to calm myself down. (laughs) I'm so glad to hear that. Thank you. That's good to know. Very welcome. So how long have you been writing horror specifically? That is an excellent question. I think that I probably have been writing it a very long time. I just didn't know it was horror. So for example, um, when I got back to writing after I'd had my children, it turns out that things I was writing were horror, but I thought of them more as magical realism or developing folk tales into novel length 
fiction. Mm -hmm. So I, I think as I think about it, I've probably always been writing horror. I wasn't looking at it that way. I was looking at the elements of magic and the supernatural. So the, Her Faithful Black Cat is originally published in The Horror Is Us. I'm wondering how that opportunity came about. Did they ask you to write a story? Did you submit a story and they selected it? So it was one of those wonderful things. I had this opportunity brought to my attention. I submitted it thinking this can't possibly be what they're looking for. And the reason I felt that way was because I had written um, her faithful black cat for something else, for a for a um, a challenge, a po challenge, and I was late for it. But I had been I had had a request from someone else, and I thought, oh, this fits because it was about animals and supernatural powers in animals, and so I thought, well, this fits, and so I submitted it to the other one where I'd been invited, and got back, which you, you have to get used to, especially if you're an African-American woman writer. <laughs> um, this is not quite what we were looking for. Mm -hmm. And so I kept it and worked on it a little bit more, tried to tweak it so it would be as smooth as I could possibly make it. And then um, to my surprise, Justin Sanders accepted it. In fact, accepted it right away. So that was, that was exciting. Right. That was affirmation. Yeah. And Justin Sanders is a Black editor, correct? Definitely. Yeah. Definitely. I, I feel like that can make all of the difference sometimes with certain stories. It does. It does. And I've been looking at these conversations on Twitter where some of the African-American writers or any ethnic minority writers will suddenly talk about, you know, what they have in common with rejections. And I think it's the story arc because as as most ethnic minority writers know, especially I think perhaps African-American women, survival may be the story, mm -hmm. right? Justice may be the story. Mm -hmm. And if you have an editor who can't appreciate that, who wants to see how did your proactive snarky heroine get out there and turn the world upside down, you may be sitting back thinking, I have an African-American woman heroine here. She is not going to get out there and turn the world upside down deliberately. Right. When, when her world gets turned upside down, that is our story. You know, how she survives it, what she does about it. Exactly. It's our story. So you said that you originally wrote this um, for an outlet that was looking for stories related to Poe. So so the, is that kind of how the premise of this story came about? It is. It is. I'm, I'm one of those people whose mother um, just piled me with books, perhaps at too young an age. <laughs> she, she gave me a Poe anthology and a Lovecraft anthology. So I've been reading these since I was in elementary school. So this is a story I know really well. And I always felt like with the Black Cat story that it, as brilliantly as Edgar Allan Poe told it, we needed to see what the cat saw. You know, we, right? He's almost invisible in the story. Right. And the woman is absolutely invisible. She's inconsiderable. You don't think about her mm -hmm. until her body is being discovered by the police. Right. Though she's murdered, we watch all this happen. So what I... When I read the Poe Challenge, I thought, 
I know exactly which story I would like to fill in with a different perspective, right? Let's find out what the cat was thinking. Let's, it, and let's go ahead and give the crazy murderer his reality. Let's make it a possessed cat haunted by a spirit. That's what yeah. he thinks. Let's see what happens. And the same with the woman. I wanted her to be central. And I also thought, if it's as bad as Poe describes it in that household, why doesn't she leave? Why, why does she have absolutely nowhere else to go? No one else to go to. Right. So that was answered by making her, first of all, an African-American woman, but secondly, during the time of enslavement and a topic that doesn't get discussed and that I do research as a professor is uh, what, what's this? What's the secret life of enslavement? You know, what what was it really like on a day to day basis? And so, some of the things we don't talk about. Tell us what you are a professor of and what you study. Oh, oh. So I'm a professor of literature, but I specialize in the study of African descent women's literature from from the continent and the diaspora. So that's my specialty, and of course you know, it bleeds out into other areas that I think are very relevant to the, the literature of women of African descent. But that is my specialty across several languages. So that's English, French, Italian, and Spanish. Oh, wow. I, I love, <laughs> I love that comparative literature changed because you used to have to study, let me see, what was it? Uh, Greek, Latin, and German to get a comparative well, there go all the African Americans, right? Nobody's going right. to do that. I had a very proactive, uh, radical um, chair and dean, so I was able to get my um, degrees in comparative literature, studying what I am fascinated by, and that's the literature that's written by women who, in whatever way and whatever degree, are descended from the African continent. So, who would you say is your favorite African American woman? author? I think that that has to be Tananri Du at this yeah. time. I, I think that she is courageous and honest and brilliant. Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> She's my favorite as well. As well. What, what about um, from earlier periods, you know, let's say, you know, 18th, 19th, century okay i that will be just a little bit harder mm -hmm. but i am going to say pauline hopkins because i think that she well certainly she's covering a period that is hidden mm -hmm. and that is that whole transitional period from enslavement through the failures of reconstruction into early emancipation. But she's doing it with this whole Gothic flair, right? Her people are hiding their identities and burying the wrong people and there's murder and chaos, right? Their secrets being uncovered. So it, it feels a whole lot more, in my opinion, like real life than some of our more polite writers. Yeah. I also the Bond Woman's Narrative uh, by Hannah. Now, that is supposedly the first African-American novel ever written, but it wasn't published until 2002. Mm 
And that was by Henry Louis Gates Jr. Wow. Uh, 2000, 2002. So he found it in one of these estate sales on the East Coast. And you can see as soon as you start reading it why it was never published. Hannah Crafts is not playing with anybody. She starts right in. She's fighting this whole description of African-Americans as talking animals. She's talking about having a soul, having a yearning for something more. And so she gives you this complex, convoluted, very supernatural, very Gothic, and in many and at many places, very uh, horrific horror story about enslavement from the perspective of this one heroine who has to try to get her freedom and can't until the very end but also bringing in all these other bits and pieces of other people's stories. It's fantastic. That's amazing. One of the things I really struggle with with this podcast is I want to find more work that's in the public domain, especially work written by Black women. And I have yet to find any work by Black women in the public domain. You know, I found Charles Chestnut, um, and a couple of other male authors that wrote horror stories. And, you know, they, they didn't necessarily just write horror stories, but it seems like African-American women are absent from American literature up until really the Harlem Renaissance. They had trouble getting published. Mm -hmm. So I will say, um, look into, please. Um, well, I know you know about Artnig. And I know that it's an autobiographical novel, but it's outrageously gothic, the abuse that she has to sustain just to survive. And I think that she tried to pattern it off of the, um, if, she, if she could, and she, quite, she couldn't because race is always the big divider. But I think she tried to make it like the popular women's romances at the time that were bestsellers mm -hmm. by bragging in her mother and father in the beginning, how they met how they ended up becoming a family and having her. But then when father dies and her mother abandons her and she's left with this awful woman, Mrs. Belmont, it, it becomes Jane Eyre. It, it's, it's Gothic. So our NIG, I think, because it is in the public domain at gutenberg.org. Mm -hmm. So it's a book, it has chapters, you can pick and choose. But I'd also say the short story, Tamla Gordon, uh, by Pauline Hopkins. It should be in the public domain. I hope it is. It's a, it's a murder mystery. Uh, very, very gothic. <laughs> <laughs> well, if it is in the public domain, it will definitely be on the podcast at some point this season, I think. Um, you know, like I said, it, it's something that I've really wanted to do is draw some attention to some of these early black writers because you know a lot of them have faded into obscurity and that's not okay <laughs> you know I want people to know that there you know is more than Zora Neale Hurston you know what I mean right we love her but there she had precedence yes she had inspirations yeah how would you say that black horror has changed over the past 100 years that's an excellent question. So I'd say it has moved from being like Wuthering Heights, you know, like Jane Eyre mm -hmm. in the house, in the community, and about domestic secrets. I think that it has exploded to be more aggressively sci-fi mm -hmm. and, and to 
include not just, I think, the, the sense of the individual feeling persecuted, which is a true assessment of the situation, but at the same time, I think to, to try to look toward solutions, you know, are there any, mm -hmm. can we, can we find a way out of this? So even when it's, I think, quite sci-fi, like with Octavia Butler, I think it's also searching for the answers. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. So Octavia Butler comes up a lot anytime I do an interview and I have pledged that anytime her name comes up, I want to know what your favorite story or novel of Octavia Butler's is. Oh, okay. Well, I'm sure you know that has shifted with time. Yeah. <laughs> but I'd say right now um, it has to be Blood Child. Yeah. That one is so rich and promising. Now I'll say this, before that, it was the Xenogenesis trilogy and, and picking one out of there, I would say perhaps it was adulthood rights, but I've had to write about it. <laughs> so I have, <laughs> I have a book chapter coming out in June, right? And so I've kind of worn myself out on right. <laughs> You're kind of over it at this point. <laughs> had my last word on xenogenesis. And what I'm excited about is how excited my students are about Blood Child. It's so accessible because of the short length, but then it's so challenging because so many issues are in it. And I think too that I've also been surprised by how many of the students who want to read it just can't get past the opening. It's already too much for them. Mm -hmm even if they think they love sci-fi and if they think they love horror. So right now I find it very challenging and very rich and I adore it. Right. So speaking of challenges, what is your greatest challenge as an author at this point? Well, this one, <laughs> this one won't be unique. <laughs> the challenge is to be published. And it's why I'm glad that I stuck with it to get a doctorate and become a professor. My second, my second preference in a career as a child, yeah. because otherwise I'd be penniless. I'd be on the street. I'd have, I wouldn't have a job. You, know, right. there, <laughs> you can't make your living writing, no matter how much you try to perfect your craft. I mean, I think that there have been periods like the Harlem Renaissance. And even then that didn't, work indefinitely for for the few women who published they all were eventually in my understanding driven out of it in one way or another then we've had some some acceptance of african-american women's work um i guess early i mean late 70s through the 80s i'm thinking of maya angelou but you know octavia butler maya angelou how many african-american women were able to make a living mm -hmm. writing and right. certainly not writing um supernatural or horror or sci-fi for for most of us it's going to get so many rejections that if you're also trying to have a life you know of a family or <laughs> any other normal involvement with life you're you can't do that if you're trying to live on your writing so right. I, I i wish we could show major publishers how to approach African-American literature differently. How do you think they should approach it differently? 
That's an excellent question. I think they should be talking with two kinds of people. I think they should be talking with African-American editors like you mm-hmm. so they can get a better understanding of what are, what is, what are the strengths? What are the unique strengths of African-American literature? I think they also need to be talking to um, academics who have looked at the use of African-American characters by film producers and authors who are not Mm African-American. So I'm thinking of American Gods, I'm thinking of Black Panther, I'm thinking of Lovecraft Country. Mm -hmm. And and ask them what those academics who look at these areas, ask them why are these authors, predominantly men of some kind of European descent, right? Either distant or immediate, they're American, but why are these men able to publish these pieces? And and we wouldn't accept something like this if if an African-American writer, writer sent it to us. Right, exactly. That's something that um, I've really struggled with a lot lately. Um, I just did a conference uh, last Friday and we had a panel about Lovecraft Country. And for those who are listening who don't know, uh, the novel was originally written by Matt Ruff, who is a white man. Um, The adaptation to the TV series um, is pretty much written mostly by Misha Green. There are some other writers involved, of course. Um, But, you know, the, the TV series is definitely written more from a Black perspective than the novel is. But man, I have such a hard time kind of getting past the fact that this white man wrote about the Black experience. And I'm curious to know what you think about that as a scholar and as an African-American woman. Are you curious? Because once I say it, you know, it's out there. (laughs) (laughs) I can't take it back. I mean, there are these problematic areas and I appreciate Misha Green's work. Mm And yet the raw material remains, right? Uh-huh. So then Misha Green, of course, wasn't in charge of casting. Mm-hmm. So what we have is this very complex situation where, for example, in uh, one character, we have an African woman playing an African-American woman who has been written originally by a white man, mm-hmm. the American It's man. a lot. <laughs> and, and we're dealing with this issue, which I am not going to get past. We're dealing with this issue that when she's able to transform, she's transformed into a, a European American woman, a white woman. Mm-hmm. And then voluntarily keeps transforming into that woman. That woman is not as beautiful as she is. Mm-hmm. That woman simply has some doors that will be open to her. Right. And so when she transforms, how she transforms, what she does uh, while she's in that body, and then why she transforms back, right? Mm-hmm all of those become very problematic because they carry on a narrative that may be offensive. Right. To African-American women. Right, right. 
Yeah, I, honestly, I didn't finish the novel itself. Okay. I just, I, I couldn't, I couldn't do it. You know, and it wasn't that there was anything inherently disrespectful um, about anything in the novel, really. It was just that there are a lot of things that just didn't ring true right. to me. And it just, it just, it didn't feel right, honestly. And at a certain point, that was me. I, I couldn't, I couldn't, I didn't get very far in it. And what I, what I did pledge was that I would see the entire series all the way through. And I'm glad I did because that was a pleasure. That was enjoyable. Yeah, definitely. And I mean, and you can tell that Matt Ruff did his research, you know, absolutely. You know, he was dedicated to doing it right. But even then, you know, with all that dedication, all that research, you know, it still just did not ring true to me. And it felt like, to me at least, a colonization of the yes. African-American experience. Exactly. It, it felt harmful in that way. You know, there wasn't anything particular in the novel, at least the part that I read, that I was like, oh no, uh-uh. <laughs> you know, there, there wasn't anything like that. It was just the idea that, you know, a white man was taking this deeply hurtful experience of what it's like to be and has been like to be an African-American in, in the United States of America and took it and made it his own in a way that that was hurtful to me, I suppose. And I think that you're right and healthy to acknowledge that hurt, Tanya, because that that is the problem right there. And, and well, I wanna say something about research because yes, a person can do a great deal of research and still not affect the baseline underlying bigotries mm -hmm. right. that that he has not seen a reason to challenge. Right, right, exactly. The research is an overlay of information that will be shaped by the biases that he firmly believes are not biases. He just thinks these are truths. Mm -hmm. And right. so we stories that may be hurtful and offensive, and certainly Misha Green did her best. I think that she did a, a superlative job. And yet, you know, <laughs> and because my students were very excited about an extra credit assignment, I did give um, two classes of students last semester the opportunity to write about any of these, Watchmen, um, Black Panther, American Gods, or Lovecraft Country, where uh, essentially white men, European American men, have taken African American characters and experiences and then created um, a very successful narrative that has been very well marketed and that has had a lot of success. And I think that it, it needs to be understood uh, that these can be as hurtful as I remember, I will never forget doing a correspondence course at the age of 11 in Uganda and getting my huge box from the correspondence school. And I had to read Uncle Tom's Cabin. Mm -hmm. And it was so embarrassing and hateful. I hated it. Yeah, I had to read it for school as well. And, you know, most kids in my school were white and exactly. man, it's, it's a uniquely traumatizing experience. Horrific. 
And then you realize this is always going to be this way. When I'm watching characters, you know, African or African-American, African descent characters handled by these writers, I'm going to have to just pause and step back, you know, and, and put on my automaton self, you know, just do it, right? Yeah. They're going to throw out these offensive stereotypes thinking that they've done me and all of my community a favor because now we're represented in a big book. Right. right. <laughs> and it's like, no. <laughs> Wish you hadn't done that. <laughs> right. Exactly. So what are your goals as a writer at this point in your career? Thank you. Actually, that would that. Thank you for that question. So, my very, very uh, favorite book was that I wrote was published by an academic publisher, and I'm always hearing how people cannot afford it. It's outrageously expensive uh, because it was done for libraries to be ordered by libraries to sit in libraries for 50 years or so. <laughs> It's, it's just not affordable. So one goal I have, if I don't achieve anything else, is to get that book um, out there in, a, in some kind of paperback format, which the publisher did initially offer. It's just that he wanted to change the title. And I thought that the title was, you'll understand this, so offensive that even though I desperately wanted it to be paperback and available to everybody and put into major bookstores I he was not going to budge on that title and I couldn't do it so one goal I have is to get that book the 1855 murder case of Missouri versus Celia which is a true story to get it republished by a popular press I, I really hope that can happen but I have another goal and because I've been writing short stories throughout my career as a professor now, I have also gone back to writing longer pieces. So they're novella length, a long novella. Mm -hmm. I'm finishing the second of those. And I have just given myself carte blanche. So they're very sci-fi horror, right? They're very, turns out they're perfect for the pandemic. <laughs> <laughs> They are this very dystopian society, you know, and, and then the trapped individuals and their domestic relationships inside that outrageously dystopian society. And of course, they're African-American. And it's my chance to tell stories the way I used to tell them to myself as a child. Just, this is what I see. I'm putting it unapologetically on the page, right? right. I think that's wonderful. That's wonderful writing your truth uh, publications i feel like if these don't get published right exactly so if you had to recommend one piece of horror written by a black author what would you recommend okay it's a tad tough but I'm going to go with The Devil in America by Kaya Shante Wilson. That, that's the second time someone has mentioned this. I think Tanana Reeve-Do actually mentioned it when I did the interview with her on the podcast. That is such an extraordinary story. I mean, of course, Tanana Reeve said that. I would have said, go to the good house. You know, you'll be terrified, but you'll be glad you read it. Oh, it's such a good book. Isn't that? <laughs> okay. But I, I have to say, um, 
the devil in America has so much and it's so brilliant because he is doing authentic history and he's doing this incredibly creative spin, but he's also telling the truth, you know, about African-American communities. And I think that, I think that as more of us get these PWI, you know, educations like I did, mm-hmm. we, we might lose focus on what African-American communities actually look like, how mixed they are, how creative they are, how closely knit they are and what happens in them and to them. So it's this incredible horror story that I think takes mythologies we don't deal with often enough. And it gives us a chance also to take a close and look at community. Yeah, that makes sense. So, what do you have out that we can read now and how can we support you? Thank you. So my Canadian publisher sold the company, uh, my, the, my publisher of novels, sold the company to um, an English company. So Double Dragon is now published not out of Canada, but out of UK, out of London, I believe. And so he has started, barely, republishing some of my novels that have been out of print. Awesome. <laughs> really excited about this. And so uh, he started with a trilogy of mine. I'm, I'm torn about which one he should have started with, but he started with the trilogy. That's where he wanted to start. And so the first two books of that trilogy are out. So the trilogy is called The Books of Joy. But the first novel in the trilogy is called Burning Streams. And it was written quite some years ago. It got an award before it was published. Wow! And it was published in, I think, 2012, 2011 or 2012, but it's been unavailable for quite some time. But it's about a woman in Los Angeles who goes, who inherits the Mississippi plantation that her parents and their parents were from. And so she discovers she's inherited it. She decides to leave LA, take her teenage daughter and her um, cousin, a woman who wants, who feels like, look, I'm, I'm very successful. I can do my accounting and banking and hedge funding wherever I go. And so the three of them head to Mississippi to this plantation. That sounds amazing. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> What's book two called? So book two is called Blood of Angels. And now, oh, thanks. I loved it when I made it up. Book two was actually the first one I wrote. And then uh, I I backed up to write an intro, like, why is this happening? So book two goes back in history. So it starts in the 1700s with a girl with wings, right? An old anthropology, a girl with wings who gets sold into slavery. And she gets brought to the the colonies that are going to become the United States. And the story uh, starts from there. So you find out how this Mississippi plantation even got established and how the women overthrew it to, so they could like hide in plain sight, you know, keep your own little community. Yeah. That sounds amazing too. Oh my goodness. Okay. So we will put links to those in the show notes for you guys. Thank you so much, Alexis, for your time today. I really enjoyed talking to you. I could have talked to you for at least another couple of hours. (laughs) I'm sad that this is over, 
but you know, maybe you'll have another story on the podcast and we can do another interview and we can talk again. That'd be great. Thank you so much. I hope you have a great day. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week with a new story. The Fable and Folly Network, where fiction producers flourish.